I think what I'll do is I'll begin in Philippians 3, verse 1, and we'll read down through verse 3. That'll give us the context that we need. Philippians 3, verse 1. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things again is no trouble to me, and it is a safeguard for you. Beware of the dogs. Beware of the evil workers. Beware of the false circumcision. For we are the true circumcision who worship in the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. And Lord, we just look to you right now to give us understanding and application of your word that it would transform our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now, hopefully you'll recall, I don't know how many weeks back this has been, maybe two weeks back, we did our first study in Philippians 3. And it was our New Year's message for 2022. And at that time, we took rejoicing as the watchword for this year. In other words, what I hope you'll do is throughout the year, you'll come back again and again and again to this idea that God has called us to rejoice in the Lord. And we saw from verses 1 and 2 that rejoicing is commanded. It's to be continual. It's in Christ. It's only for Christians. And it has to be contended for. So those are things that come straight out of the text. And one of the reasons that Paul told the Philippians that they had to fight for their joy was because there were some folks that were out to steal their joy through legalism. We call those people Judaizers. After Paul would plant a church, he would leave town and he would go to the next city to plant a church somewhere else. And these people would come in, these Judaizers. They were Jews. And they would tell these new Christians, oh, it's great that you believe in Jesus. That's wonderful. You need to do that. But it's not enough. You need something else on top of Jesus Christ. You need to be circumcised. You need to obey the law of Moses in order to be saved. So they preached the gospel of Jesus plus. Faith in Christ alone was not enough. They needed Jesus plus something. And so what they had done is they had transformed the message of grace into a message of works. And that's why Paul wrote the whole epistle to the Galatians was over this very issue with these Judaizers who were saying that faith in Christ alone is not sufficient. You need to be circumcised. You need to keep the festivals. You need to keep the sacrifices. You need to go back to the Mosaic law and follow the Mosaic law plus Jesus. And all of that together, the smorgasbord of things, that'll be enough to get you into the kingdom. And Paul had some pretty rough words for the Judaizers in Galatians chapter 1. In effect, the Judaizers we're getting new Christians' eyes off of the Lord and onto themselves. And whenever you do that, that will kill joy. Because our joy comes from fixing our gaze on Christ, not looking inward at ourselves. Now, that's why in verse 2, Paul wrote, Beware of the dogs, beware of the evil workers, beware of the false circumcision. The dogs represented filthy, wild, scavenging animals that prowled around on the streets, got into garbage. They're not our cute little cuddly pets that we have today. They, they were wild back in the Bible days. And he called these Judaizers dogs. He called them evil workers. They were claiming to be workers of righteousness, but Paul said they're actually evil workers because what they were doing is promoting human pride. And he then calls them the false circumcision. They were boasting of the fact they were righteous before God because they had been circumcised in the flesh and they were keeping the law of Moses. But Paul says, no, you might, 
you might be circumcised, but you're the false circumcision. And that last phrase there, beware of the false circumcision, that gives Paul an occasion to talk about the true circumcision. False circumcision, that's describing false Christians, false professing believers. True circumcision is talking about true believers, true Christians. And so now Paul is going to go on in verse 3 to give us a lesson on what it really means to be a true follower of Christ. And this is important because so many people, and I'm, not, I'm sure you know this and you've talked to people, right, that so many people claim to be Christians, but are they all Christians? You know, 40-50% of America claims to be Christian. The, the actual statistic is probably more like 1% or 2% instead of 40%. Most people who make the claim of being a Christian have never been born again by the Spirit. Um, so Paul's going to set us straight as to what the true circumcision is. And Paul tells us there's actually three marks of a true Christian. He worships in the Spirit of God, he glories in Christ Jesus, and he puts no confidence in the flesh. Those are the three marks he brings out of the true circumcision. Now before we can get into those three marks, let's talk about that first phrase that he picks up on here in verse 3. He says, we are the true circumcision. Let's just think about that phrase, the true circumcision. What Paul is doing is he's contrasting the Judaizers with the Philippian Christians. The Judaizers who said, they're the false circumcision. You Philippian Christians and myself and Timothy, we are the true circumcision. He's saying that the Judaizers were claiming to be the true covenant people of God because that's what circumcision was all about, right? It was the sign of the covenant of the people of God with their God. This is the sign of the covenant. He says the Judaizers are the false circumcision. They have the outward sign in their flesh, but they're not the true people of God. He said the Philippian believers who have come to Jesus Christ by faith, they're the true circumcision. They're the true people of God. And instead of having a physical mark of the covenant with God, they've got a spiritual mark. In other words, what Paul is saying is just because these Judaizers have the outward mark of the covenant in their flesh and had kept some external laws of Moses, that didn't make them into the true covenant people of God. Something much more radical had to happen in their lives for them to be considered the covenant people of God than an outward mark on their body and keeping some external laws. And he describes what that needed to be in verse 3, those three marks. So think about this, false circumcision, true circumcision. The circumcision the Judaizers had experienced was in the flesh. The circumcision in the flesh. And the only circumcision that really counts is the circumcision of the heart. Paul describes that over in Romans chapter 2, verses 28 and 29. This isn't the first time he's talked about the circumcision that has to do with the heart, the inward circumcision. And in Romans 2.28, he wrote, For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that which is of the heart, by the Spirit, capital S, the Holy Spirit, not by the letter, and his praise is not from men, but from God. So there Paul gives his teaching on the circumcision that really counts. It's not in the flesh, 
like the Judaizers. It's in the spirit. It's of the heart. The praise of this person doesn't come from men, comes from God. And Paul wasn't pulling this teaching about being circumcised of heart out of thin air because the Old Testament speaks about being circumcised in heart. For example, Deuteronomy 30, verse 6. Moses wrote these words. He said, Moreover, the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul so that you may live. Now, first of all, think about this, this passage. Who's doing the circumcising in Deuteronomy 30, verse 6? I'll read it again. Moreover, the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants. God's doing it, right? What's the consequence? What's the result of this heart circumcision that God does? To love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul so that you may live. So when Paul wrote in Romans 2, 28 and 29 and Philippians 3, 3 about this inner circumcision of the heart by the Holy Spirit, he was, he was right in line, consistent with Old Testament teaching as well about the circumcision of the heart. I believe the, to be circumcised of heart is the same thing you and I would describe today as being born again. It's the surgery that the Holy Spirit does inwardly upon a person's heart to change his heart, to enable that person to love God with all of his heart and with all of his soul so that he has life. That's what he says in Deuteronomy 30, verse 6. That happens to people today when the Holy Spirit gives them a brand new heart through regeneration, through new birth. So when Paul said in Philippians 3, 3, for we are the true circum circumcision, I believe it was saying something like this. We are the true covenant people of God because the Spirit of God has performed surgery on our hearts, giving us the ability to truly love God through being born again. That's what makes someone a true child of God. Not going through an outward ceremony like circumcision, or not keeping some external laws, but it's through the work of the Spirit of God that they're made into a new creature. Okay. I think that's a good enough background for us to get into these three marks. The first one, a true Christian worships in the Spirit of God. That's what Paul tells us here in verse 3. We are the true circumcision who worship in the Spirit of God. Now, of course, the Judaizers, they would have claimed to worship God. But their worship of God consisted in observing external rituals and sacrifices and festivals and feasts and fast days, all of this external stuff. It was, it was works done in the flesh. It was all about rites and ordinances. But it's interesting when you compare the worship of a Pharisee or the worship of a Judaizer with the kind of worship that Jesus describes for us in John chapter 4. And if you want to, you can flip back there. We're going to take a few minutes and, and look at Jesus' teaching on what true worship is. In John chapter 4, we, remember we have this woman that lived in Samaria. She was an immoral woman. She had been married five times, and she was now shacking up with another guy. They weren't even married. She was living in an, a sexually immoral relationship. Jesus is having a conversation with her. And Jesus had already uncovered to her her past life. He told her everything about, about her, all of her sins. And this woman says, Sir, I perceive that you're a prophet in John 4.19. So because Jesus could nail 
all of the things about her past life, she knew that there was something supernatural about him. He, he had to be a prophet to be able to know that information. And then she went on to say, you know, there's, since you're a prophet, maybe you can help me out with this question I've always had. I'm, I'm a Samaritan, and Samaritans say that we're supposed to worship on this mountain. And she was talking about Mer Mount Gerizim. And she said, well, Jews, they say that you're supposed to worship in Jerusalem. And my question is, what's the right place to worship? Is it Mount Gerizim, like the Samaritans believe? Or is it Jerusalem, like the Jews believe? Now, Samaritans were half-breeds. Samaritans were half-Jew, half-Gentile. They weren't accepted by pure-blooded Jews. Pure-blooded Jews would not allow the Samaritans to come to Jerusalem to the temple to worship. And so they said, okay, we'll just create our own temple. So they found a mountain to build it on, Mount Gerizim. They built themselves a temple. They constructed their own rules about worship there in the temple. And the thing about the Samaritans is that they did not have all of the Old Testament. They only held to the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch. And so they were somewhat ignorant of God. And so through all of this, this woman says, okay, we've got our own temple. We've got our own place to worship. Are we doing it right? Or do we need to worship in Jerusalem like the Jews? And in verse 21, Jesus responds and he says, woman, believe me. An hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. In other words, worship's not about going to a certain place. Worship is to be done 24 hours a day, seven days a week, wherever you are at. You see, that when Jesus confronted the Samaritan woman, they had the mindset that worship was supposed to be done there in Jerusalem at the temple. And he was telling them that, that a new era is breaking right now. And in this new era, forget about holy places. They don't even matter anymore. Worship is to be done in the spirit, not in Jerusalem or not in the temple. It's to be done in the heart. And within a generation, the temple in Jerusalem would be destroyed anyway. And they couldn't go up to Jerusalem to worship at the temple because it wouldn't be there anymore. He's saying there's a whole new era, this new covenant is coming into being where holy places and holy times are no longer the issue. Wherever the Christian is, that's where he worships. Whether it's a house, whether it's a special building, whether it's outdoors, whether it's at the beach or the mountains or in his prayer closet or walking around the block, wherever you are, that's where you're to worship. And then in verse 22, he says, you worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. In other words, the Jews have the truth, not the Samaritans. And that's because the Samaritans only had the first five books of the Old Testament. The Jews had all the rest, which gave them a much greater full understanding of God and his ways. And so Jesus says, salvation is to be, or excuse me, worship is to be done in spirit, not in certain places, and then secondly, worship is to be done according to truth, according to all of the scriptures, not this sort of uh, mongrel, <laughs> throw, throw this pluralism together, get some of it from paganism and some of it from the first five books, mix it all together and come up with your own way of worship. Worship has to be done according to God's truth, spirit and truth. So what's Jesus telling her? First, worship isn't supposed to be performed in a certain place. It's performed in spirit. Second, 
You can't worship however you want. Worship has to be performed according to God's truth, not according to your desires. And that's why he goes on to say in verse 23, an hour is coming, and now is, even right as he stood there with this woman, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for, get this last phrase, for such people the Father seeks to be his worshipers. Isn't that interesting? God is seeking people to be his worshipers. He's scouring the earth for them. He's, remember Jesus talked about seeking and saving that which is lost? God saved you and I to be worshipers. He sought us out. He brought us into his kingdom to be worshipers. So the first mark of a real Christian is that he worships in the spirit of God. What makes him different is not that he worships, because people all over this globe worship. They might worship different gods. Or, here in the United States, it's more likely that they worship different things, like money or power or fame or position or pleasure. There's all kinds of things that people worship as their number one priority in life, the master passion of their life. So people worship. And that shouldn't be a surprise to us because God created us to be worshipers. That's why when you go anywhere in the world, you can go to people who have never heard of the gospel, but you, they're worshiping something. That's why when people came to here to the, the, what we now know as the United States, the indigenous people were worshipers. They worshiped something. People all over the world worship. The, the problem is that they worship the wrong thing and they worship in the wrong way. What makes a Christian different is not that he worships, it's that he worships God in the spirit. He doesn't merely go through external rituals or rites like these Judaizers were. His worship is prompted by and directed by and governed and empowered by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is working on his heart inwardly and because of that work of the Spirit on his heart, worship comes out from him. People, there are people all over the world that are worshiping in special places and in ways that are not according to Scripture, and you'd have to say those people are false worshipers. God has true worshipers, and there are false worshipers. And if you don't worship according to His truth, and if you don't worship in spirit, then you can't be considered a true worshiper of God. Now, if a Christian worships in the Spirit of God, that means that his worship is supernatural. Not just merely natural, supernatural. The worship of the Christian is being produced within his heart by the work of the Holy Spirit. Not by tradition or culture or guilt or fear or desire for the praise of man. True worship comes by the Holy Spirit producing this love for God that erupts into various forms of worship. Now, the word for worship in Philippians 3.3 is the Greek word latruo, latruo, and it means to serve or to worship. Um, it's the word that the, we would assign to the priests when they would go into the temple and they would serve God there through their worship. So we, we also need to understand this about worship. It's not just to sing songs. It's not just to pray. Worship has to do with how you serve God. And you serve God as a Christian 
not simply when you're in church for two hours on a Sunday. The Christian serves God, worships God all through the week. All, all of his days and hours should be filled with worship of God. Of course, it comes out in different forms and expressions throughout the week. Remember what Paul said in Romans 12.1? I urge you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. So what is our spiritual service of worship as Christians? It's to present our bodies a living and holy sacrifice to God. When do you do that? When does somebody present their body to God as a living sacrifice? Well, that happens all the time. It can happen in any situation. Whenever you need to yield your will to God's, you're presenting your body now to God as a living sacrifice to do His will. You're worshiping God. In other words, you don't have to be singing a praise song to worship God. Whenever you're willing to yield your will to God's worship's happening. When you'd rather be doing something else and your spouse asks you to do them a favor and you say, okay, Lord, because I love you, I'm going to go do this to love that person. That's a form of worship because you're yielding your will to God. You're, this is an expression of your love to God that you're willing to go above and beyond and do this thing. Hebrews 13, 16 it says, do not neglect doing good and sharing, for with such sacrifices God is pleased. Did you know doing good and sharing is a sacrifice of worship that God is pleased with? We're not here talking about prayer or praise songs. We're talking about doing good and sharing. Opening up your pocketbook and giving to somebody that needs help. That's a form of worship. If you have a neighbor who's sick and, and needs food and taking them a meal, that is an act of worship according to Scripture. It's doing good. So worship is what we do when we love and adore God. So it might look like singing. It could look like shouting. It could look like praising or bowing. But it could also look like rejoicing or delighting or serving or obeying or sharing or doing good. In other words... Our whole life should be a sacrifice of praise to God, a sacrifice of worship. No matter, we can, be, we can be worshiping God while we're at work. If you're tempted to tell a lie in order to get a, a big deal, and you, because of your relationship to God and your love for God, decide you're going to be a man of integrity, you're worshiping. You can do it while you're at work. You can do it while you're playing with your children putting their needs before your own. You're tired and don't want to play with them, but you love your child and he wants to play and so you're willing to give it up. Form of worship because you do that because of your relationship to God. You see, it permeates every aspect of life. Our whole life should be like the sweet savor being rising up to the Lord. So don't compartmentalize your life into your, the holy parts. Well, that's from Sunday from 10 to 12, 30. <laughs> And the rest of my life is secular. No, that's, that's not the way the Bible describes the Christian's life. All of life is holy. All of life is sacred because we live it unto God, no matter what we're doing. So let me just ask you, are you a worshiper? Do you worship in the Spirit of God? Have you truly given your life, your body to God? Have you yielded your will to him? 
Because you love him, are you looking for ways that you can glorify him? Those are all expressions of worship. And is all of this happening because the Holy Spirit's working in you? And you can tell that the Spirit of God is working in your heart because he gives you and he prompts you to do these things that you know are going to bring glory to God. That's the very first mark of a true Christian. He's a worshiper. Let's look at the second mark. A true Christian glories in Christ Jesus. That's what we find in Philippians 3.3. He glories in Christ Jesus. Now what exactly does he mean by glory in? The Greek word that Paul uses has a range of meaning that can include glory or boast or exult or rejoice. There's a wide range there. This word is probably most often translated as boast. So let's just switch it here for a minute and see how it sounds. This person boasts in Christ Jesus. That's what he means by to glory in. He boasts in Christ Jesus. Paul uses the same Greek word in 1 Corinthians 1.31, where he says, let him who boasts, there's the word, let him boast in the Lord. He uses it in Galatians 6.14. But may it never be that I would boast, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. So may it never be that I would boast except in the cross of Jesus. That's what I'm going to boast in, Paul says. It's used in Romans 5.11. Not only this, but we also exult. There's the word. We also exult in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. So Paul's saying that one of the marks of a true Christian is that he boasts in or rejoices in or glories in Jesus Christ. The true Christian has put his whole trust in Jesus, and he has absolute confidence that Christ won't let him down. Now, the Judaizers are boasting in what they had done, their circumcision, their law-keeping. Paul says that's not the way a true child of God conducts his life. He doesn't boast in himself like you're doing. He boasts in Jesus Christ. He puts no confidence in his flesh. So the true circumcision will never boast in what he has done, but he will boast in Christ alone. The true Christian finds Jesus Christ to be everything to him, right? His all in all. There, there is none besides him. Christ is all sufficient. He provides every deep need of the heart and the soul. Christ is enough. Jesus obeyed the will of the Father and he became flesh. So why do we boast in Christ Jesus? Because Jesus became flesh. Jesus obeyed the Father and resisted the temptations of the devil. Jesus obeyed the Father and went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed of the devil. Jesus obeyed the Father and drank the cup of God's wrath. Jesus obeyed the Father and became obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. And then to show that the Father had accepted Jesus' death as full payment for sin, Jesus rose from the dead three days later. So the Christian looks to what Christ has done. He's done all. And what did Jesus accomplish? It's because of him that we have redemption. It's because of Jesus that we have forgiveness of all sin. It's because of Jesus that we are adopted into God's family. 
It's because of Jesus that we've been justified by God's grace. It's because of Jesus that we're not condemned. It's because of Jesus that we're new creatures in Jesus Christ. It's because of him that we have received eternal life. It's because of Jesus that we're no longer under the curse of the law. That's why we glory and we boast in him. Everything that we have that is of any value comes through Jesus Christ. Do you see? We don't boast or put confidence in the flesh. We boast and put all of our confidence in what Christ has accomplished on our behalf. That's why the hymn writer said, Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. And that's why George Whitfield would go out into the fields and preach to multitudes of people. And he would often cry as he's preaching, let the name of Whitfield perish, but let Christ be glorified forever. That's because he was not boasting in his flesh or putting confidence in his flesh, but all confidence and all boasting and rejoicing and glorying was going in Jesus Christ. That's simply the heart of a genuine Christian. If, if you don't want to put all of the glory and all of your boasting and all of the attention in Jesus, then maybe you're not a real Christian because that's the heart of a real genuine follower of Christ. He loves the Lord and he glories in what Christ has accomplished on his behalf. That's the second mark of a true Christian. What's the third mark? A true Christian puts no confidence in the flesh. Now, that was the very thing that the Judaizers were doing. They were putting confidence in the flesh and the circumcision of their flesh. Their confidence is in what they could do, what they can contribute. They had this gospel that was part works and part grace. Jesus, it's good that you believe in him, but it's not enough. You need to do these th things over here. And in contrast to that, Paul says that the true Christian puts no confidence. So zero. None. At all. If you have part confidence in yourself and part in Jesus, I would have to say from Philippians 3.3 3, that you're not a Christian. A Christian doesn't put any confidence. Now, by the word confidence, he's talking about trust. That's what he means there. Are you trusting in Jesus alone or is part of your trust in yourself and what you have done? Do you think that God is going to have favor on you because you've done certain things? or because Jesus has done certain things. Do you see the difference? The Holy Spirit teaches the true Christian just how weak and how sinful he is. He teaches him that apart from Christ, he can do nothing, John 15, 5. He teaches him that in his flesh dwells no good thing. He teaches him, cursed is the man who trusts in mankind and makes flesh his strength and whose heart turns away from the Lord. Jeremiah 17.5. Now, what does Paul mean here by flesh? Because he says he puts no confidence in the flesh. Well, by flesh, he's talking about human nature without divine enablement. He's talking about what we are by nature without God working in our lives. Just who we are in Adam. We're born into this world as flesh. So the idea is that the true Christian puts no confidence in himself to make himself acceptable to God in any form or fashion. He puts no confidence in his genealogy. Paul's going to go on to tell us this in these later verses. 
He puts no confidence in the fact that he was an Israelite or that he was of the tribe of Benjamin or that he had been circumcised on the eighth day or that he had kept all of the feasts and festivals or that he brings an acceptable animal to God to be a sacrifice for sins. All of these things are things that man can do. And Paul says the Christian puts no confidence in anything that he can do. No trust at all. Zero. 100% of his confidence in Christ and what Christ has accomplished. And when we go out witnessing, the sad thing is that it is really common, I would say in the 95 percentile of when you start talking to a person who thinks that they're saved and going to heaven and you get to the bottom of their hope and their trust, it's in themselves. Over and over and over, you find this out. And you can ask a simple question like, so if you were to die today and stand before God and God were to ask you, why should I allow you into my kingdom, what would you say? That gets to the root of what their confidence is in. And if they start saying I or me to an answer to that question, you know they don't understand the gospel. Their confidence is in something they've done. They might say, well, because I was baptized or because I made a decision or because I was a member of this church or because the most common was I'm a good person. Of course I'm going to heaven. I'm a good person. Or, um, you know, I try to keep the golden rule. I mean, the, this comes in all kinds of forms and fashions. But it all points back to me. This is what I've done. This, my confidence is what I've done. And it's sad. Because the gospel is not about what you've done. It's about what God did for you. That's what gospel's all about. It's good news. If it's about what I do, that's not good news. Because what if I don't do enough? How will I ever know if I've done enough? But we know that God has done enough. That's why it's finished. Religion without Christ is damning. If you are trusting in your religion or your religious observances, you'll be condemned on the final day of judgment. Many people think that because they were baptized, they're going to go to heaven. Many people think that because they're a Baptist or a Pentecostal or a Methodist or a Lutheran or a Presbyterian, they're going to be saved. Many people think because they're a member of a church, they're going to be saved. Or because they observe the Lord's Supper. Or because they went to church every time the church doors are open. Or because they listen to Billy Graham or all some other great preacher that makes them a Christian or because they put all their money in the offering plate. I mean, you can do all of those religious things and not be saved. So, if your confidence is in Christ plus your good works, you still haven't embraced the gospel yet. You're in the same position the Judaizers were. They received Paul's severest rebuke. In Galatians chapter 1, if you're trusting in your religion, that's going to send you straight to hell. Because ultimately, it's you're putting confidence in your flesh. That's what it boils down to. Instead of glorying in Christ Jesus. Now, as we come to a conclusion in our message today, I want to share many things that are not a sure proof that a person is saved. First, a past conversion event. A lot of people are putting their trust in a past conversion event. 
In other words, someone will say, I know that I'm a Christian. I know I'm going to heaven because when I was seven years old, I prayed with my mom to accept Jesus into my heart, a past conversion event. Or when I was in the youth group, I raised my hand in an altar call to go forward. It's a past conversion event. Or when I was 22 years old, I went to a Billy Graham crusade and I walked the aisle. They're putting their trust in a past conversion event. Did you notice that Paul, when he gives the marks of a true Christian, doesn't refer to anything in the past? He talks about something that's going on presently in their life. They are right now worshiping in the Spirit of God. Right now they're glorying in Christ Jesus. And right now they're putting no confidence in the flesh. So you can have some event in the past, but if your life today does not it's not consistent with that event that you supposedly say happened in the past, then it's useless. It's worthless. What God is looking at is right now, where are you at? Not what did you do or not do, what decision you made in the past. Does your life bear uh, evidence that that event in the past was real and genuine? was not a fake or phony. Genuine Christianity, yes, it has a beginning point, but if it's real, it's going to last. Now, of course, there's going to be ebbs and flows, but it's going to last. It's not going to disappear. It's not going to revert at some point. So does your life today validate the event that you experienced in the past? Is it ongoing? So, okay, just to make it more personal, for me, this was the spring of 1979 that I experienced the work of the Holy Spirit going on in my heart to give me a love for the Word of God, which I'd never had before, and a love for lost people. And thank God, that's 79, this is 2022, that's 43 years, I still have it. <laughs> so that's, that's reassuring to me, that it, the work that God started, He'll finish. It wasn't something that lasted for six months and was gone. And when, when true salvation comes, it lasts, it endures. The man who perseveres to the end shall be saved. Perseverance of faith. So, our past is worthless if it's not backed up by what is taking place in our lives today. A past conversion event is no sure proof that you're a Christian. Two, living a moral life is no sure proof that you're a Christian. And I say that because the world is full of people in false religious systems or false religious cults who are nice people. You'd probably like them for your neighbor. They'd probably come out and help you when you needed help. Uh, they're nice, caring people, moral. But people have different reasons for doing what they do, don't they? They might be afraid of God. They might have a desire to please a spouse or a parent. They might have a belief that they're going to earn heaven by what they're doing. Think of the rich young ruler. He was a moral man. He lived a moral life. He said to Jesus, all of these commandments I've kept from my youth up. But he says, one thing, Jesus said, one thing you still lack. Sell everything you have and give it to the poor and come follow me. He knew he didn't possess eternal life. Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Although he had been a moral person and kept the law, he still lacked eternal life. And so just living a moral life does not guarantee that you are amongst God's true people and are going to heaven. Think of the Apostle Paul himself. We're going to talk about it next time. 
he says, as to the righteousness which is found in the law, blameless. But yet he was unconverted. He didn't know Christ. He was still lost in his sins, living an outwardly moral life. So that's no sure proof of genuine salvation. Number three, the ability to perform miracles is not a sure proof that you are amongst God's true people. A lot of charismatic or Pentecostal preachers are claiming to do lots of different miracles, and maybe some of them are true, but we, we tend to th assume, okay, if anybody's going to go to heaven, surely it's going to be that guy who can heal people, or he can cast out demons, or he's able to prophesy about these things. Well, I, I've never been able to do that. If anyone's going to heaven, it's probably him. Well, not so fast. Because Jesus said in Matthew 7, 22, Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. That's as clear as it can get. Someone may do miracles. It doesn't mean they're regenerate. Remember Judas we have every reason to believe Judas worked miracles. All of the disciples were given authority to cast out demons and to heal the sick. Judas would have been among them. But Judas went to his own place and Jesus said he was the son of perdition. He went to hell as someone who could work miracles. Number four, biblical knowledge is not enough to guarantee that you're a child of God. There are a lot of people that have biblical knowledge. There are professors in seminaries that are unconverted, that know a lot about the Bible. And some people may even have orthodox beliefs about Scripture. In other words, they believe in the deity of Christ, the virgin birth of Jesus Christ. They believe in his sinless life, the miracles that he performed. They believe that he died as a substitute for sin. They believe he rose from the dead and ascended to heaven. They believe salvations of grace through faith. All of those are orthodox things, yet simply knowing those facts alone does not mean that a person is saved. We know that because Judas had lived for three and a half years with Jesus and heard out of Jesus' mouth day after day after day truth about God, and Judas wasn't saved. Number five, religious rituals are not a sure proof that someone is saved. We know that circumcision alone didn't save people because we read about that today. The Judaizers were circumcised. The Pharisees performed all the religious rituals that God commanded. They were very fastidious about that. They were circumcised. They observed the feasts, the festivals, the fast days. They offered the proper animal sacrifices, but the Pharisees themselves were estranged from God. You can pray five times a day like the Muslims who must pray five times a day if they ever want to I mean, that's what he was telling us yesterday. He prays five times a day, and I said, well, what would happen if you didn't? And he was unsure. He said, even if he did pray five times a day, he has no guarantee that he's going to be in paradise. You see, even Muhammad didn't know. That's what he told us. Even Muhammad didn't know if he was going to make it to paradise. So there's absolutely no security or assurance in, in the Muslim faith. But you can pray five times a day, you can be baptized, you can go to church every time the doors are open. That's not a sure proof that a person is saved. Number six, professing Christ as Lord is not a sure proof that a person is saved. Because Jesus said, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven shall enter. 
And there's lots of people like this that make a profession of Christ as Lord, but they don't possess Christ. They claim to be his, but they're not united to him. They say they're Christians, but they've never been born of the Spirit. So making a verbal profession is not a sure proof that a person is saved. Now, all of these things may attend a person who is a genuine child of God. He may perform certain rituals like the Lord's Supper and baptism. He, he's going to live a moral life. He's going to profess Christ as Lord. He's going to have some biblical knowledge. I don't know if he'll be able to perform miracles or not. That's up to God. Um, and he's going to have a conversion event in his life. An event where he came to Christ. But those things in and of themselves are not a sure proof that a person is saved. But in Philippians 3.3, 3, there are three things that are a sure proof that a person is a child of God. He worships in the Spirit of God. He's a worshiper. His life is filled with worship of God. Two, he glories in Christ Jesus. His, his greatest boasting and exulting and rejoicing are not in what he has done, but in what Christ has done on his behalf. And he puts no confidence at all in his flesh, in anything that he's ever done or will do. That's not the grounds of his eternal hope. The grounds of his eternal hope is Jesus Christ and Christ alone. So, are you a true Christian? That's the question that we would need to ask ourselves today. Are these three marks in Philippians 3.3 3, true about you? Are they true about me? Lord, let us go to the bottom and be honest and analyze our life to find out whether it's true that we worship in the Spirit of God, whether we glory in Christ Jesus, and whether we put no confidence in the flesh. Help us, Lord. If there's anybody here that is listening either in this room or through Facebook or through this message later online that hears this and is considering these words, Lord, would you make it very clear to them whether they are your child so that they're not self-deceived and that they might still find life. Work, Lord, according to your word and according to your sovereign good pleasure. In Jesus' name, amen.